The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, July 12th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The question you've been asking about me so far is, of course, what are my pronouns? Officially, they're another and whomever or some such, also a pronoun. Who's to say which pronouns most everybody ought to use for themselves? There are six pronouns in the preceding sentence, although really five based on how I use them because most is a modifier, but it can also be used as a pronoun. Whomso is also a pronoun. It's the objective case of whoso. I shall now use whoso in a sentence. Let's say we're talking about the Avengers movie and, you know, the very few people knew that Iron Man might die or not. You would ask, whoso knew? The brothers Russo knew. Now, logically, if there is a whomso, there has to be or should be a herso and a himso, though there's never been so. But if there's a himso, maybe there should also be a they so, which brings us to the pronoun du jour, they. This is the big pronoun that where pronoun all talking about. Farhad Manju, writing in the New York Times, says that he wants to be called they. Sorry, they want to be called they. Kind of weird when you think about it. This is a good point that the first thing you identify a person as is their gender. Of course, should be the high school they went to. No, seriously. By, by fixating on gender, A, it places a fairly huge amount of importance on gender. I think an amount of importance that we're generally trying to get past. And B, it might not even be right. You know, your assumption may be wrong. So rather than assume or buy into gender norms or binaries, Farhad, as a good male ally, I guess they would say, says, call me they. Now you might be saying, Mike, when you just said, I guess they'd say, they'd say, who do you mean? But you'd be wrong to ask that because it's whom do you mean? But I get the point. I'm not against changing the language to make a point, to advance a cause, to get something right where something is wrong, but I think they have a problem. They, they is the problem. In my opinion, the regendering or degendering project may have a tough time achieving its goals because the word that they picked, they, is already in common use. Common, common use. The gay community using gay or the queer community adopting queer, those are examples of co-option of words that were already in use. Maybe they're also, depending on which one you think about, an example of taking back an existing term. And there was some resistance to that because, oh, they took a word that was already out there. That resistance was lampooned in this famous Kids in the Hall sketch. I'm all in favor of certain people having their own, you know, lifestyle. But why did they have to take the word gay? It's such a lovely word. They've, they've robbed the English language of a beautiful word. But the difference between co-opting an existing word like gay or queer and a word like they very much comes down to frequency of usage and a little bit of how it's used at all. They is either the 26th or 21st most frequently used word in the English language, depending on which citation you go by. It is above we, up, if, 
can, and no. Not and, but I wanted to end the sentence, so I said and, no. In choosing such a common word, the people who would like to rejigger pronouns have crafted an uphill battle for themselves. They've created a barrier to easy or even not so easy acceptance. Now, right now, I don't use the word Latinx to describe members of the Latino-Latina community because, quite frankly, I'm waiting it out. I don't want to be seen as too pretentious, but in a few years, I'm also not going to want to be seen as behind the times. Mostly, I just want to be a decent and inclusive and kind person who wants to call people what they need to be called. That's another thing. You know, if most people in the Latinx community are saying, call us Latinx, then I'll certainly call them Latinx. What am I, the Latinx police over here? When we say Latinx or even LGBTQIA, we're using specific nouns. LGBTQIA, it's kind of a collective noun, which is actually kind of nice and uplifting in a grammatical sense when you think about it. And nouns, specific nouns like that, do not mind if you dwell on them. That's kind of the point, actually, in a sentence. If you consider them, if they take up a bit of mind space on the part of the listener or the crafter of the sentence, but pronouns operate entirely differently. They're meant to ease you along and glide you into the parts of the sentence, the parts of thought that you are supposed to be spending higher mental processes on. It would be hard, but not impossible, to adopt a change from he or she to say Z or Lee. But to change to they, I think is much, much harder. Because they already mean something. And the thing it means is not just different in the sense that gay happy is different from gay homosexual. The thing it means is a sort of opposite to the thing it's trying to replace. Because one doesn't mean several. That is a problem in terms of widespread adaptation. Look, Latinx has a good chance of catching on, I would say. It degenders people of Hispanic origin, actually people of Latin origin. But if you wanted to successfully come up with a new term, Latinx made sense. You wouldn't want to call them Philippinex because that's a different thing than what you're trying to replace. And and when I say that's a different thing, of course, people aren't things, but person isn't people. That is what I'm saying here. The people of Slate, a very kind but almost comically progressive bunch of humans, are doing this left and right. Got an email. Mike, today Farhad Manju wrote a column about wanting to be called they. What next is going to talk to him? To which I responded, no, they'll talk to them. This is a prediction. This is not a condemnation. But I think it's tough enough to get everyone to rethink and recraft their pronouns, but it might be doable. But to further add onto the work of getting people to change the way they've talked since they were about four or five, which means getting to change the way they think, because when you're using pronouns, you're really talking by instinct. To do that is piling on a gigantic complication that could prove off-putting even to people of goodwill. Take me. When you ask people to say African-American instead of black, I think one an older generation might have chafed, then the next will adapt, and then the third won't even think about it. But they is going to be much harder because it's much different. My producer, Daniel, disagrees. He, not they, says... The word, they, is a movement, and it's about language, but it's also about actual people who have searched for ways to articulate their identities, and they have found by repurposing pre-existing non-gendered pronouns, they can embrace their place outside of or in between the gender binary. 
using they, Daniel notes, also gets at the feeling of more than just male or just female or maybe a little bit of neither male or female. Well, it's very flexible. And as for the linguistics of it all, he says he thinks it's much easier to convince people of a new additional meaning of a word that we already use rather than inventing a new one. Okay. But I say this. I say, if you want progress, why make it so hard for others to join you? I do wonder, this isn't a theory, but it's, it's a bit of wonderment, if the use of they being slightly uncomfortable is part of the point or part of the appeal to the people who want to use it, just given our current mood of not prioritizing the accommodation of the majority. There are precedents, by the way, for linguistic inclusivity coming in fits and starts. If you're wondering, look, whenever there's a new phrase, uh, everyone fights it, then they adopt it. No, not true. Some neologisms never gain wide appeal. Think of history or women with the Y. Some have declined in use and replaced by other ones that the language smiles upon more. According to Google Trends 15 years ago, Hispanic was 50% more popular than Latino, and those trend lines crossed in 2007. Now Latino is almost twice as popular. If I had to predict in 20 years, if they were widespread instead of him and her, I would say no. I could be wrong. I'm old and cranky and the kind of person who correctly uses fewer instead of less. If someone wanted to disagree, he or she might be right, therefore they'd be wrong. On the show today, I spiel about the Acosta who is out of the president's hair, only for Trump, it's the wrong Acosta. It's Alex Acosta, labor secretary, who has stepped down. But first, Emily Bazelon, New York Times magazine writer and panelist of the Slate Political Gab Fest, has a new book out. It's also a new podcast. I've been meaning to talk to her for a while. It is called Charged. It is about the progressive prosecutor movement. Emily points out that prosecutors have enormous power within our system to define the law, even though their jobs are supposed to be simply upholding the law, but their choices drive the story of crime prevention, incarceration, probation, employment, and of course, life and death. As ever, when I talk to Emily, we take the conversation far afield. I argue for pretty strict gun laws. She argues for effective diversionary programs instead of prison. And yet we both agree, Alex Acosta is a shady dude. Of course, when we were recording the conversation, he hadn't stepped down yet. So, got that? She'll make a reference to the labor secretary. That happened a day or two after we talked. But here she is now, Emily Bazelon with Charged. Progressive prosecutor. It's one of those phrases like mindful meditation or holistic health that you just can't object to. So trendy. Emily Bazelon has written about the role of the prosecutor in the criminal justice system. It is an outsized role. It is a hugely important role. And it is a role that is changing in interesting ways. I love Emily Bazelon. I'm going to argue with her a little bit, but first I want to agree with her as we talk about her book and podcast, Charged, the new movement to transform American prosecution and end mass incarceration. Hey, Emily. Hey, I like how you deflated me right at the beginning by calling a really important aspect and sort of um, prong, I will say, of the criminal justice reform movement trendy, just dismissing it at the outset. Well, I think that, no, I think the idea of being a progressive prosecutor is the trendy thing, that someone can't not say that. I think of uh, Kamala Harris, who has adopted that mantle, much to the contradiction of fact. Well, Kamala Harris's trouble is that 
She, when she was the DA in San Francisco, she did some things that at the time were innovative. Now she's laying claim to the progressive prosecutor mantle, but the movement has moved. uh, That's not the best phrase, but the movement has (laughs) gone much further than it was then. And so the people who are trying really hard to elect district attorneys who want to reduce incarceration and just shrink the whole system, they don't want to be boxed in by the Kamala Harris definition of a progressive prosecutor because it lags so far behind where they've come. Right. And we could get to more of Kamala Harris. But to me, there are different uh, choices she made on specific cases. But if you look at her record on cash bail, it was regressive. Now, as a senator, she has introduced some legislation. But I also note that she was the only one of the Democrats who filled out a survey for 538 who did not say she supports ending the cash bail system in all cases. I think that's significant. Right. I, I think it's fair to judge people by the standard of the time. When Harris was the DA, nobody was really talking about bail reform. Maybe they should have been, but they weren't. However, her stance now, in light of all of the evidence about how wasteful and wrongheaded and counterproductive cash bail is, that's far more problematic. And I think what you see here is Harris trying to straddle the politics here, right? She wants credit for the diversion program she started in San Francisco. She also, however, wants to be seen as the top cop, as like a strong law enforcement figure. And so I think you see her making these kinds of compromises in her stances. And, you know, I'm not sure whether how many for how many voters this is really a deal breaking issue, but it's it's tricky in this field. I also think Harris is vulnerable with her record as attorney general of California. There were a number of things she did, um, or her office did, I should say. They really failed to address prosecutorial misconduct in some pretty high-profile cases. They didn't investigate this big scandal involving the DA's office and the sheriff's office in Orange County. And so when you look at that record, too, which is more recent, then you think, okay, this is someone who was trying to thread the needle. Now, I mean, I also always want to say about Harris, at the time she ran for attorney general in California, there were two black women elected to statewide office in the entire country. And so there's a reason that she felt particular pressure to be threading this needle and to try to make uh, the kinds of compromises that would win her more support from law enforcement. But, you know, the question is how that plays now uh, for the 2020 election and especially in the Democratic primary electorate. Especially if the standard is let's judge the politicians by the standard of the time, what has given her the wind beneath her wings, not exactly doing that as regards Joe Biden. Right. I mean, I think Joe Biden has his own like deep vulnerabilities on this issue. And Mm -hmm. there are lots of things he said in the 90s when he was backing the crime bill, when it was like very fashionable on both sides of the aisle to be blaming, you know, so-called super predator criminals for America's problems. There was just a really harsh way that politicians talked about crime in that era that has has not aged well because it didn't work, right? I mean, we made sentences much harsher. We passed all these mandatory minimum sentences that gave prosecutors far too much power. Joe Biden was a part of that and is also having to figure out how to kind of reposition himself in a different era. Yeah, I, I agree. I think he's just like Kamala Harris in that as a very powerful person trying to use the best evidence available, he had accomplishments and made mistakes. And some of those things that you're talking about, mistakes, We could also add to the fact that he wanted to greatly expand the number of crimes that were applicable to the federal 
death penalty. Right. But just like Kamala Harris has these uh, marks on her record that are bad, but was also trying to be progressive for the age. If you look at a lot of the stuff that Joe Biden championed, he was right. It brought crime down and crime was in a terrible position. Okay, so you started by making some really big sweeping statements. You said it worked. It brought crime down. When you say that, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the uh, 1994 crime bill, which did add to incarceration, but also all the best criminologists say it brought crime down to somewhere between 10 and 20 percent. It wasn't the only thing that brought crime down. Over incarceration is certainly a problem. But it had an effect. And if you say, not if you say, but if one were to say, oh, crime was coming down anyway. I mean, I've talked to a lot of criminologists and sociologists. They say, you know, it's dishonest not to give the crime bill some credit for stemming crime, even if it came at a great cost. The way I usually think about this, having also talked to lots of criminologists, is that in general, the rise in incarceration in the 80s and 90s and, you know, later in America, yes, there is a modest effect in terms of a drop in crime. How much is directly attributable to the crime bill? Like, uh, okay, may, uh, 10 to 20 percent? Maybe. I mean, I think there are people who would question its direct effects on that. But if you are talking about the rise in incarceration writ large, which the crime bill was a part of, I think that's true. And then the question becomes, okay, what were the costs from that, the human costs, the way that it, you know, really unraveled a lot of communities, particularly low income communities, communities of color. We now see, you know, the ripple effects and the kind of aftershocks of over incarceration and the way in which which, you know, in particular, putting so many black men behind bars has just had this incredibly destructive effect. And so I think when you look back on it, it's really important to take those effects into account and to think about the way in which going to jail and prison produces more crime, right? We know this. It makes people more likely to reoffend. And so when you're talking about the drop in crime and you're saying, okay, well, we put all these people away, they certainly weren't committing crimes on the outside while they were locked up, and there were some other people who were deterred. Yeah, sure. But there's also this way in which you wreck communities and make people commit more crimes afterward. And that seems like an important part of the picture to include as we're looking back on that era. So aside from charged uh, the podcast, has the book criminal justice issues another well it's related another main focus of your attention is to talk about sexual crime sexual violence also the me too movement and it does seem to me that we were in a moment where there are these cross currents where the best most progressive people want to get less carceral and less punitive when it comes to the people being arrested except when there's a guy like Jeffrey Epstein who makes the news but there are elements to his punishment that engender howls of protests that does indicate to me that we as a society or the progressive parts of society aren't necessarily in a forgiving mood or a non-punitive mood. We're just more in a mood for justice. And justice doesn't always mean to decriminalize. Justice means justice. And I wonder if the progressive prosecutors are in general advocating a system of decriminalization just as a corrective or because they think that is the definition of justice? You know, I think you're on to something really important. 
what the Jeffrey Epstein case stands for to me is the problem of corruption when we don't have even handed justice and we see someone who's really rich and has uh, important friends seem to get an enormous break throughout that other people wouldn't get. Right. And so when you see that, when you see that kind of just like utter inequity, it seems to make the whole system seem suspect and dirty. And yes, there's also this question of like, what should the fair punishment be for that crime? But you also just feel soiled by this story that's about someone using their rich and powerful connections to get something that they shouldn't have gotten. Also, it was illegal. I mean, a federal judge has found that the fact that Alex Acosta, now our U.S. Labor Secretary, didn't inform the victims of this non-prosecution agreement was actually a violation of federal law. So there is just so much to complain about in the Jeffrey Epstein story. I think you're right. We do want justice. Let, let me just get to guns in, in New York City. You know, most of the podcast is about a kid who's uh, who was caught with a gun in New York City, and he went into a diversion program. Here is my theory, and you argue against it, or here is how I think about it. I don't know if people know, but in 1991, 2,245 people were murdered in New York, and last year, less than 300. Okay, this is a 90% drop. Let us do this. Let's identify the biggest possibly solvable problem that's going on in society. So let's put aside global warming. Pick another huge problem. I doubt that that problem will ever be solved to the extent that homicides in my city were solved. And I think it is notable that New York City, which has much lower homicide rates than any random place in the United States and cut homicide down so much more than anywhere else in the United States, also has the absolute strictest gun laws in the United States. And part of those gun laws are basically if you have a gun, you're going to get arrested and there's going to be a pretty harsh sentence. You talk about in the book, the guarantee of justice, the guarantee of punishment being fundamental to punishment actually working. But I mean, do you disagree with any of this? Do you think that New York City's harsh gun laws don't play a huge effect in bringing murder down in New York City? Yes. The way that you're talking, this sort of from the gut argument, uh, here's the part I object to. New York City has done an excellent job of keeping gun ownership low. That is absolutely important. Uh, Frank Zimring, we're throwing around the names of a lot of law professors, but I'm going to add him to the mix. He wrote a book called The City That Became Safe about New York City, and he says that the low rate of gun ownership is really important. But Frank also is a big skeptic that mandatory minimum prison sentences for gun possession are a factor in reducing gun violence. And the reason is there's been a lot of research on exactly that question in different places around the country, and it never pans out the way that you just assumed. Does that mean that, like, you should have no criminal sentencing at all for gun possession? I'm not going that far. But I think this assumption, and the NYPD is constantly pounding it home. This week, Mayor de Blasio and the NYPD attacked a diversion program in Brooklyn that provides a small escape hatch for young people charged with gun possession. This assumption that we have to block every single person up who has a gun, it's wrong. It, that is not what we can attribute the drop in crime to. And it wrecks lives. It treats everyone as the same. It doesn't think about the circumstances of people's lives. Why do poor kids in Brooklyn have guns? Well, what they say is that they're protecting themselves. So 
Let's think about how to give them other options, how to make that seem like a choice they don't have to make instead of just assuming the locking them all up is the answer. Because you know what? They're all going to come home. Even if you put them away for two or three years, which is what New York is doing a lot of the time, they come home and then they're probably going to be less equipped to become productive citizens, right? They have these serious felony records. They have trouble getting jobs and housing. It's, again, it's really short-sighted and it's not necessary. Can I ask you one last question? Yeah, Because this is a fundamental part of the podcast. So in the in the podcast, Tarari, who we meet, and he's likable, we get to know him. He, like you just said, had the gun for protection. I don't credit that because if you look at the stats, he didn't need the gun for protection. It's one case to say in 1991, when there are 500 murders in the Brooklyn South precinct, that you need a gun for protection. Now that there are 50 something murders, and I just looked up these stats, you don't need the gun for protection. And if he didn't have the gun, he wouldn't have been shot. I mean, there comes a certain point where that becomes a less sympathetic argument. I think New York City's at that point. So, uh, try didn't get shot, first of all. He got arrested, almost certainly illegally. No, I know, but like thinking that you need the gun for protection. Yeah, but Mike, you're taking these like nice rational statistics and you're Im- imagining that it fe- that is the world as Tarari sees it. And that's just not true. Like, he lives in a much more specific universe in which there are people who he felt threatened by. There's lots of evidence of this in the podcast. He talks about it a lot and explains why he felt like he needed to be protected. In fact, a few days before he got arrested for having a gun. Someone had like harassed his sister at a party. Those people were threatening him on social media and actually came mm-hmm. to his house. So the kind of abstraction of the lower um, homicide and shooting rate in New York, those things are some kind of factor in people's minds, but your own specific universe can be telling you something different from this larger picture, right? Is that specific or is that subjective? It's subjective. Ob- objectively, it's extremely unlikely that you're going to need a gun. If the if he was living in London, he might say, well, I need protection and it's a knife and it would be much better for society. Well, yeah, but I feel like we're having this conversation as if like everybody's a rational actor and has like a total grasp on all of that. So first of all, in poor neighborhoods in Brooklyn, the threat of a shooting, if you're a young black guy, is much higher than it is overall. But even oh, yes. absent that... People's perceptions of being threatened can be out of date, right? Right. They can be, like, based on all the ideas they grew up with. They can be based on what they see in the movies, based on the image they want to project. That kind of subjective understanding of your life, like, you know, looking at it as, like, a white middle-class person from the outside, it's just, like, a different view of things, even if it's wrong. I mean, look, Drury's decision to get a gun is, like, misguided. It lands him in a lot of trouble. And, you know, one of the other characters in my podcast talks about, like, this idea of guns protecting you well when he had a gun on him he got shot like it doesn't even work in the moment of self-defense the way people want it to so i'm not i'm not defending the notion that guns protect people i think that's wrong i'm just saying that i think it's important to understand where kids like this are coming from and to try to like think about what could change their worldview as, as opposed to just dismissing it but the way to convince a kid like tarari that he doesn't need a gun is not to point at a stat is to change his lived experience the same kid in chicago I might not agree with, but I'd understand more. Once it becomes less and less objectively true that you're likely to get shot, then it becomes less and less likely that that kid is going to think he has a gun. And my point is that the, the thing that affects objective truth 
are things like programs that essentially say if you have a gun, you're doing some jail time. Look, I I feel like now we're looping back to where we were before. I just disagree with you. Like that mm-hmm. threat of deterrence. It when you talk to the kids who are arrested for gun possession in New York, they don't give a shit about that. That's not what they're thinking about. They said one of them said to me like, I'd rather go to prison for a couple of years than than be dead. Like they do see that as a real threat. There are neighborhoods in Brooklyn and in New York even that remain dangerous or they've grown up with that memory of danger. It feels present to them. You know, you can try to talk people out of it. You can give them other options. There are lots of ways to try to work with kids to make them understand that they are making bad choices. There's a bigger, better world out there for them. But the idea that threatening them with prison, that that's the thing that is going to convince them not to have a gun, I just don't think so. We have lots of evidence that that is does not affect their mindset in the moment. These are rash teenagers, right? We're talking about people whose brains are not fully developed, like young, (laughs) rash boys and men. They're not as rational as you're being right now. Well, kids should, yeah. I mean, and this is one of your bullet points. Oh, terrible, terrible phrase. This is one of your action items. (laughs) This is one of your action items. Is that what you meant? (laughs) Kids should be treated as kids. Charged is the name of the book. It's also the name of the Slate podcast. And the name of the woman behind both of these is Emily Bazelon. Thank you, Emily. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Breaking news. Alex Acosta is out as Labor Secretary. Acosta out. And in a stunning development, to replace him, the White House brings in Russell Westbrook. The former OKC point guard is a league leader in points and minutes, but will he be able to oversee mine safety? The White House said to be considering a sign of trade that would move Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats to the New Orleans Pelicans for LeVar Ball, big baller brand coming to D.C. LeVar Ball, great talent, but is it the right fit? Will there be enough minutes for both the talented young point guard and the septuagenarian tweeter who is clearly the alpha dog on this team? Let's bring in Stephen A. Schwartz. Stephen A., what do you make of the deal? The administration has huge needs at commerce, but Wilbur Ross apparently has a no trade clause, as does Robert Lighthizer, which is very short sighted because he is the trade representative. At least Ross is in an expiring contract. Now, they've clearly got to do more in the interior. David Bernhard is not proving to be a rim protector. The Grand Canyon is just crumbling out there. They could use a better energy guy than Rick Perry. And I question their veteran leadership. David Wilkie, head of veteran affairs. Who is this guy? Oh, and don't get me started on their defense. They need to address the defense. Ever since Mattis retired, it's a huge hole in the defense. Mark Esper, this guy's barely above replacement level. Um, hold on. You're not Stephen A. Smith. No, I'm Stephen A. Schwartz. Oh, the guy who wrote Pippin and Godspell? No, that's Stephen L. Schwartz. I'm just one of many guys named Stephen Schwartz who has an opinion and a studio free. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Rivers belong where they can ramble. Eagles belong where they can fly. Okay, moving on. Here's what actually happened today. President Trump stood next to his labor secretary, Alex Acosta, who is stepping down over criticism that he gave billionaire, though possibly only millionaire, Jeffrey Epstein, a sweetheart non-prosecution deal for the crimes of sexually assaulting young women and girls. Today, Trump basically forced Acosta into agreeing that he, the president of the United States, was but a passive participant in the Labor Secretary's continued labor. And Alex, I think you'll agree. I said, you don't have to do this. 
He doesn't have to do this. Earlier in the press conference, amid the din of the whirling helicopter motor that Trump loves to conduct press conferences next to, the president explained why he may have felt both a little uncomfortable, but ultimately reassured by Secretary Acosta. He was a, he's a tremendous talent. He's a Hispanic man. He went to Harvard, a great student. Aha. The president then touted some of the accomplishments of his outgoing secretary in a way that no human being could possibly understand. What he's done with plans, and you see the plans coming one after another. You're just about done with the 401k, and that happened. Things that nobody would even think of. Things with 401ks that no one ever thought of. What were these 401k innovations? Trump did not spell it out. I researched it. I was trying to help our uncommunicative commander-in-chief. I think it has something to do with the fiduciary rule. Now, you may have read about this. It was in the news a few months ago. In fact, a year before that as well. The fiduciary rule demands that retirement advisors act in the best interests of their clients and put their clients' interests above their own. The fiduciary responsibility. Guess what President Trump thinks of a rule that tries to prevent savvy financial experts from ripping off their clients. I will quote from a Wall Street Journal op-ed. The fiduciary rule as written may not align with President Trump's deregulatory goals. This administration presumes that Americans can be trusted to decide for themselves what is best for them. The author of that op-ed, Alex Acosta. Good man, also Hispanic, went to Harvard. Doing things with 401ks no one ever thought of. Yes, that too. I'm unclear, and I think it's unclear where the administration stands on enacting or fighting the fiduciary rule. President Trump certainly didn't explain it. The SEC has a version of it. I would like to understand it. It would be nice if our president could maybe say a simple sentence that I could grasp. Anyway, most of the press conference consisted of Trump bashing familiar enemies. Like... A mayor like de Blasio is probably the worst mayor in the country from New York. I don't even know what his attitude is. Nobody does because he doesn't work very hard. Nobody knows what the hell he does. And he also bragged about familiar accomplishments using the third POTUS singular. Nobody has treated the military better than President Trump. Nobody. Nobody's even come close. Yes. Alex Acosta stood by for nearly 25 minutes, quite uncomfortably, having quit this godforsaken rat trap, but being unable to finally extricate himself. Acosta briefly stepped up to the mic to make his own claims, including... Workplace fatalities are down, bucking a three-year trend. That we had the safest year ever in mining, the lowest number of fatalities ever in mining. This is not true. According to the Bureau of Labor's own website, combined fatalities in coal mines and metal and non-metal mines were the lowest in 2016, the last year of... Barack Obama's presidency. Yeah, with all this loose talk and indecipherable talk and incorrect talk, I thought it would be nice to end with an incontrovertibly true statement. Here now, our president. I've lived through things that that you wouldn't believe. Uh... Yes, agreed. I think we all have every day for the last two and a half years. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bien-Aimé and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. They've alighted on this pact to avoid the he-him issue by only identifying themselves in tandem during the credits. TJ Raphael is senior producer of Slate Podcasts. 
She prefers whereunto and such like. What Next is a podcast from Slate every day, each morning in your podcast feed. Were you to survey the podcast feed today, you might find the big bad legal argument that could finally end the Affordable Care Act. Also, uh, check out Monday. I think Farhad's going to be there. And now, our trivia question. And you can find the answer to this trivia question by signing up for our newsletter, slate.com slash gist news. Here it is. So words have changed since Shakespeare's time. But what I'd like to know is which of the five most common words used today are not in the top 15 in Shakespeare's work? Which of the five most common words today were much, much less common in the works of William Shakespeare? The gist. I'm a pepper. She's a pepper. They're a pepper. Thou's a pepper. Thine's a pepper. Wouldn't thee like to be a pepper too? Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.